Shalom. Hi, everybody. Nice to be here. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. And uh, it's a great place to be for the first snowstorm, you know. It's better than Brooklyn. <laughs> is right. So Chosen People Ministries uh, uh, began when a Hungarian rabbi emigrated from uh, Eastern Europe and came to the Lower East Side of Manhattan, heard a Polish Presbyterian missionary sponsored by Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church preaching the gospel in Yiddish at a Reform, Dutch Reformed Church. Well, it gets better. I, don't ask me to repeat it, though at a Dutch Reformed church uh, on the Lower East Side. And uh, he heard the gospel there and had been seeking and actually came to faith. And so that was 1892. And then Chosen People Ministries began in 1894 after Rabbi Cohn went to the only place in the world you could get a decent education for the ministry. And that, of course, was Scotland. And so he studied in Scotland at New College, Edinburgh, and then came back to Brookline, L-E-I-N, which was a Dutch little suburb of Manhattan. And, uh, and there began a ministry among the hundreds of thousands of Jewish people who were fleeing Eastern Europe for freedom and economic uh, stability. And uh, Jewish people just tend to not like being persecuted. So they... Uh, came to uh, Brooklyn in order to outnumber the Dutch, really. And, uh, and God really blessed Leopold Cohn's ministry during those years, and many, many Jewish people came to faith. And there's an old principle in missions in general and in Jewish missions in particular, and that is immigrants are usually more open to the gospel than others. Why is that? Because they leave they're a family, they leave the central, if they happen to belong to a, a global religion like Judaism, they leave the center of their, um, of those who might oppose what they're thinking. They're looking for new ideas, new meaning in life, and uh, people are more open, and they're usually needy. And so immigration is a great opportunity for evangelism, and Leopold Cohn understood that and committed his life to reaching his fellow Jewish immigrants. And so Chosen People grew in those early years, and we did everything. We had medical clinics. We, had, uh, we taught Jewish people how to use imported, fancy, very technical Jewish, uh, uh, German sewing machines at that time. Little did he know that the Jewish people would end up in the garment industry in virtual slavery. But that's, he tried. He did, he meant well. And, and so this ministry grew and, uh, and it, it really, you know, sometimes things change and sometimes they don't. And uh, we haven't really changed that much. And it's been my goal to not change chosen people uh, because the heart and the vision and even the strategy has always been really good and is really focused on scripture and, uh, and the practicalities of, of life. And so today we do the same stuff. We 
tell Jewish people you can be Jewish and believe in Jesus, but we don't just tell Jewish people that. We offer holiday services, children's camps, where they can bring their Jewish kids to learn more about how to be Jewish and believe in Jesus at a young age. We do all the holiday services. We are very, very focused on Israel for obvious reasons. As I told Dick before, a lot of Jewish people there. And, and so uh, we also deal with the whole person. And so we've always been, ever since we began, you know, it's, it's hard to, to preach the gospel to someone who's hungry. And so we, we've always done benevolence. And uh, we don't do benevolence to get to evangelism. It's just part of what Christians do in order to love people. And then people oftentimes respond to that love and open their hearts to the message of Jesus. And so we do that everywhere. And uh, one of the places we've been doing that, and something you might want to pray about, and I'll talk more in Sunday school about some of these things, but one of the places we've been doing that is in Ukraine. And actually not just Ukraine, in Poland and uh, Germany, and actually in Israel. Because uh, you have a lot of uh, Ukrainians, of course, who have left their, their country and are fleeing safety. And now there's an, another increase in people fleeing because of the cold weather uh, in Ukraine. And people are going to various places. Uh, my grandparents are from Ukraine. And uh, lots and lots of Jewish people who live in the United States have Ukrainian Jewish roots. And some have Russian Jewish roots and so on. My wife has Romanian Jewish roots. She's a Jewish believer. And so we, we always had a deep concern for that. Rabbi Cohn always cared about the old country. And we, our first foreign missionary went to Poland and uh, with chosen people back before, almost before the turn of the 20th century. And so we've always had a heart for these areas. Right now, chosen people, if we have globally 200 people on our staff, it might be something like that. Uh, we probably have about, I don't know, 30 or 40 Ukrainian or Russian Jewish people or from, they're from some other part of the FSU, but they speak Russian as their first language. And they're, they're on our staff everywhere from Australia to Israel to Ukraine to Russia to the United States, the Holy Land, Brooklyn, you know, lots of them. And, uh, and we're ministering to these people. And, it, and we're a to the Jew first ministry. We focus on the Jewish people, but we don't throw the others, uh, we don't throw the other fish back into the pond, you know? And, and so we're very, very active. And then, and this church is sophisticated enough to understand that when you have a Jewish outreach, doesn't mean that everybody who's coming is Jewish anyway. And uh, then there are a lot of mixed marriages and so on and children. And, and so we turn a blind eye in times of need, of course, to whatever ethnic or racial or whatever, wherever people are from. So it's to the Jew first and also to everybody else. And, uh, and so we do, we're doing a lot of everybody else right now. We just recently struck a partnership with Samaritan's Purse that's given us another four tons of food every week. Uh, and uh, our team from Poland is running that into, um, running it to the front lines. And, uh, and there are Jewish people and non-Jewish people. We've been sustaining about 500 people who were part of Messianic congregations that we actually planted 
in Ukraine over the last 40 years. And uh, there's nothing left to Mariupol, so they're not there. We had two congregations in Mariupol and in Kharkiv and uh, in Kiev. Kiev is still functioning, of course, but it's not easy and it's getting harder. And then all throughout that area. And they migrated west and to the surround, uh, really the sort of the suburbs of Lvov or Lviv. And uh, we've been ministering to that community. And we've been, they, they can't survive without us right now, if you can believe that. I mean, these are hardworking people, smart people, into technology. But you know what happens when you can't, when your home isn't there, your bank account is gone, your job is gone. <laughs> you know, you don't have a lot. And, but they have the Lord and they have, they have us. And so we've been sustaining about four or 500 people for the last eight or nine months. And, uh, and God has blessed us uh, financially. We've been able to do that. And so uh, we are seeing people come to faith in Ukraine. Um, hardship sometimes drives people different directions. But in this instance, we are seeing people come to faith, growing in their faith. Congregations are meeting. Of course, COVID was in the middle of all of it, too. So, I mean, it's just, you know, it's just difficult times. Uh, but the Lord's been bringing people to himself. We're really excited about it. Uh, if you get the Chosen People newsletter or if you are getting our emails and so on, uh, we're, we're going to have another round of thank yous coming. Um, what we do, for you auditors in the crowd, you know, we've been giving a lot of cash to people. They don't, they don't have bank accounts. So what do you do? You know, and, and you'd say, well, then just give them food. Yeah, well, that's food. What about blankets, sleeping bags, wood for heat? I mean, there are so many needs. You can get pretty well overwhelmed. And you can't get a receipt for everything. So we found a new way to show our auditors that we're kosher. We have video thank yous. And, and it worked, at least for this audit. And, uh, and of course, I was concerned about this. I'm the CEO of the organization, but oh my word, I just wept all the way through the thank yous, you know, just to see what they're going through. And, 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 you know, it's nice sometimes knowing that you can make a difference in people's lives. And, and now we're handling about the seven, the numbers are up to over 70,000 in Israel who are coming into the country, emigrating uh, from Ukraine and Russia. And you will be shocked to know that 65% are from Russia and 35% are from Ukraine. And so we are ministering to them. We're starting to rent some apartments to help them. We're helping with Hebrew. We're helping with, you know, the Israeli government gives them some money and they can take Hebrew, but they don't know where to take it and they don't speak Hebrew. So they can't ask anybody. And so who do they ask? You know, they're just very practical problems at the ground level that people don't deal with, but we deal with them. And so we have a great staff in Israel that are just really loving and taking care of, of these folks. And just one more thing before we get to the message, we just also had a, uh, in, uh, right on the border in, in uh, Poland, but on, on the Ukrainian border, uh, where people could get there. The men couldn't come, but the women and the children could come because the men have to stay in Ukraine. And so uh, we just had a camp with 90 unsaved kids. 
Jewish and Gentile kids for a week uh, in, in Poland. We brought the whole team in from Israel because we do a lot of camping programs in Israel and most of them speak Russian. And so we just had a marvelous camping program. And I really got a kick out of it um, because, of course, we provided the funding for it. But what was really cool is our, our guy who leads this camping program, Maxime, emailed me and said, the kids would like to say thank you. I said, okay, he's, can you Zoom with us? I said, sure. So I, Zahav and I last Saturday Zoomed with the kids, and, uh, and they were all saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah, you know, it moves me. And, uh, and so it's their best fundraising technique, let me tell you. And, but what a joy it is to impact lives. And I'm not sure how many, but I think there may have been a dozen or more kids who got saved uh, at the camp. And uh, so God is doing some really good things in the midst of hard times, but we know that he's faithful, don't we? He really is. Well, this morning, uh, there's a lot more going on, but I'll tell you, especially in Israel, but I'll tell you uh, at Sunday school. So you all have to get your cookies and come back quickly. Okay. So we're approaching that season of the year that I love so much. Um, the Hanukkah Christmas season. And I just want to make sure you understand one thing about Hanukkah and Christmas. It's more than lights. It's more than candles. It's more than presents. But there are some things that really unite Hanukkah and Christmas. And I've been searching for that for my whole Christian life, which is now 52 years worth. I've been looking for it. And Here's the, the most important statement. You ready? Without Hanukkah, there'd be no Christmas. Got it? Why? Because the devil is a nefarious strategic enemy. And so if the devil could destroy the Jews, then there'd be no Jesus. So the devil has spent a lot of time and is still at work in trying to destroy the Jewish people. No Jews, no Jesus. If you believe correctly theologically like me, then you would read Romans 11, verses 25 to the end of the chapter, where it says in that day all Israel will be saved. And you would understand, as I understand, and maybe you do, that it's not over yet because God is still using the Jewish people who have a very prominent place in the plan of God, particularly in the, in the wiping up, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, cleanup strategy in the end of days. I mean, everything was done on the cross, but, you know, um, the cross is not the end of it. The cross is the beginning of it. Big difference. And so Jesus is returning. Did you know that? It's good. You ever notice how many Christmas hymns are about the second coming? Joy to the world, especially. Look at the lyrics. Uh, and so um, when the Jewish people turn to Jesus, then Jesus returns. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. If you want me to work all that out on a chart, uh, I'd have a few problems with that. But the theological truth is there. When the Jews come to Jesus, when they return to Jesus, Jesus returns. 
And so we have the first coming dependent upon the prophecies in the Old Testament being fulfilled that a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. So there needed to be a Jewish virgin and there needed to be a real live Jewish person who would be born, who would be God wrapped in flesh and be the savior of the world. It's Jewish. And so if you destroy the Jews and you get the Babylonians and the Medio Persians and the Greeks and the Romans and everybody else to destroy the Jews before he ever came, then Satan would be a winner, right? But he lost because it didn't happen because of Hanukkah. <laughs> and then today, though it's not necessarily biblically clear, we do understand that if Satan can somehow wipe out the Jewish people, wipe out the nation of Israel. Um, if he can do that, then there'd be no Jews to return, and then there'd be no return. So Satan really has it in for the Jewish people. <laughs> and that's another uniting uh, factor between Christians and Jews. We both have the same en enemy. So it is my duty uh, as a Jewish person to tell you the Hanukkah story. So I have to tell you, but this is Glazer's version, it won't take long. First of all, you'll never find it in the Old Testament, it's not there. You'll find it in the book of Maccabees, which is part of the Apocrypha, which is only there if you're a Catholic. And, uh, and so uh, Jewish people view the books of Maccabees as good history though. Good Jewish history. So here's a story from my perspective, very quick. So Alexander the Great dies. He divides the kingdom into four parts. You can actually see this in the book of Daniel, chapters 10 and 11. So he, he divides the, uh, uh, the, the world into four parts. One part is the Jewish part, it's Israel, and it was given to the Seleucid Greeks. And so these Greeks uh, took over this part of the world. By the way, they had Egypt too. Pretty lucky if you like falafel, okay? And so they had Egypt and Israel. And then what happened is Antiochus Epiphanes became, who was a general, became the emperor. Now, Antiochus Epiphanes had some, uh, in my opinion, he had some psychological issues. Um, and faith issues. One of which is Epiphanes means in Greek manifestation. And the reason he was given that name, the Jews called him Antiochus the madman, by the way, but the rest of the world called him Epiphanes. And the reason why he was Epiphanes was because he genuinely believed that he was the physical manifestation of Zeus. Uh, that was not uncommon for Greek regents at the time, but he took it a little far. And so the story goes like this, you can read it in the, Maccab in the books of Maccabees, that he sent a statue of himself around to all the villages in Israel for the local folks to bow down to the statue and swear allegiance to Antiochus Epiphanes. He got to the town, they got to the town of Modin, which if you're ever going to Israel, it's right near the airport. And so in the town of Modin, there was a group of, Levitical priests. 
it was the Maccabee family, not Scottish Jewish. So the, the Maccabees rose up in rebellion and killed the uh, emissaries of Antiochus, fled to the Judean hills, and staged guerrilla warfare against the Seleucid Greeks for the next three years. In 160 BC, they won. They won. And they went to restore the temple and make sure that it was all cleaned up, and they discovered a horrifying fact. It seems that Antiochus's army had sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem at the temple. Do I believe this part's true? Absolutely. Yeah, why not? Uh, they were not nice people. And so they sacrificed the pig, and the story goes that Antiochus Epiphanes um, was busy trying to quell uh, some rebellion in Egypt. So he kind of let the Jews do what they want, let them win, and so on. And so they did, and they cleaned up the temple, removed the stones because they were, not, they were beyond cleansing, stacked them up in part of the temple area and said, when the Messiah comes, he can clean the stones. It's interesting. And so um, they restarted the, uh, the temple in operations with sacrifices. And then you have what I think is a myth. So there was enough olive oil in the eternal light in the temple, which was a requirement, Numbers chapter 30. So there was enough olive oil in the eternal light to last for one day, but it lasted for eight days. It was a miracle, a Hanukkah miracle. And that is why Jewish people light an eight-branch menorah, which actually is a, has a ninth branch, because that's called the shamus or the servant, and it's the servant that lights the other candles. And so <clears throat> we give presents for eight days, Hanukkah lasts for eight days, and we eat anything smothered in oil. So you get a pass for health on Hanukkah. So we eat potato latkes or potato pancakes. Why potato pancakes? Because you deep fry them. Okay, they're fried in oil. In Israel, they don't eat potato pancakes. For the most part, they eat jelly donuts called sufganiot. They're delicious. And for those of you who have a little Latin American in you, you can get jelly or a dulce de leche in, in there, which my wife is Argentine. She prefers those. And, but they're greasy. Why? To remind you that for eight days, the lights lasted because we had enough, miraculously, we had enough oil to do that. Of course, it was olive oil, so it was healthier oil than what they, we make the food. And so, uh, do I think that that was true? No, probably not. Probably not. But I think the heart of the story was true. Antiochus, who thought he was, the manifestation of the head of the pantheon, Zeus, wanted people to worship him. In fact, he restricted the freedoms of the Jewish people, taught them Greek, didn't allow them to worship as they wished, and did everything in his power to turn the Jews into Greeks with the penultimate step being that the Jews would reject the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and embrace the gods of the Greeks. That is the story of Hanukkah. Now, why do I tell you that? Because 
The only place in the New Testament we read, or in the Bible, Old and New Testament, the only place we read about Hanukkah is in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. It's the only mention of Hanukkah. Because if Jesus was born, uh, or Jesus was born in, everybody says, 0 BC, I'm not sure how they know that, but, but let's just say that uh, the uh, times of Jesus were somewhere between 0 and 32, 33 AD. Um, you are really talking about um, Jesus coming probably within less than less than 200 years after Hanukkah, the Hanukkah event took place. So the Feast of Dedication was already, as because it's actually mentioned, Hanukkah means dedication. Hanukkah is Hebrew, dedication is English. And so the New Testament demonstrates to us that Hanukkah was a bit of a big deal. And of course, you don't read about them lighting men the menorah because John the Apostle and I agree on that. It probably wasn't true. It's probably just tradition. And so if you don't understand the story of Hanukkah, then you'll never understand John chapter 10. And you'll never understand one of the most profound statements that Jesus made in his entire life. And it is a statement that actually is fundamental to the celebration of Christmas as well. And so I've decided to start a new, new club, maybe a new movement with t-shirts. And the first one is Christmas is a Jewish holiday. And the second one is Hanukkah is a Christian holiday. Any takers? I'll put you on our mailing list. We send out one email a year. So it'll be the least you ever get. Now, why do I say this? Because in order to understand our holidays today, I think we have to really get under the surface because I think there's some something fantastic to understand. Listen, uh, Jesus made seven I am statements in the book of John. There were also seven great miracles in the book of John. Now, don't ruin it and say, what about the eighth or ninth? Because seven is the number we're looking for here. Okay. But seven great I am statements in, in the gospel of John. And Quite a few of them actually had to do with his deity. Which, as a Jewish believer, is significant to me because there are the, the two major reasons why Jewish people do not believe in Jesus is number one, everybody knows you can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus. That is everybody except those Jews who believe in Jesus. We don't accept that. So the Jewish community says you can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus. And the second thing, probably pretty close to the top there, is that we can't believe that God can become a man. Because if God is a man, it would mean we're worshiping idols, which is commandment number one. And two, really wrapped up. No other gods and no shapes or forms of God. And so theologically, 
if, if the first one, you can't be Jewish and believe in Jesus, is a socio-historical reason because of all the persecutions of Jewish people over the years by quote-unquote Christians and the chasm that has developed, another satanic strategy, and the chasm that has developed as a result of it, then the main theological reason is that Jews cannot believe that God will become a man because then he becomes an idol because God's not supposed to have any form. And to push it a little further, you've got the Trinity, <laughs> which, you know, Jewish people are raised saying, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6.4. But most Jewish people don't know enough Hebrew to know that there's two different words for one, Yahid and Echad, and the word Echad can easily meet a composite unity. Easily. The man and the woman became Echad, flesh, one flesh. But most Jewish people would never understand that. I was raised knowing that the difference between Christians and Jews was that Jews believed in one God and not three, which, of course, none of us believe in three gods. We believe in one God, three persons, but one God. So you know the statement. It was actually during the Feast of Tabernacles, if you can believe this. During the Feast of Tabernacles, at the end of the feast, after in John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. He said, I am the father. He said, before, I'm oh, sorry, before Abraham was, I am. Very complicated statement, by the way. You've got to know a little Greek and a little Hebrew to get this one. So here we go. You ready? The name for God in the Old Testament is unpronounceable because it's so holy. God goes by a few different names, but the main one was Jehovah. Have you heard that? Okay. Now, we don't really know what Jehovah means. We don't even know how to say it because vowels were put under it in the ninth or 10th century, but it's unpronounceable. It's never spoken. We always say Lord, we don't say Jehovah, okay, if we read it. You read it with a, a Jewish guy, and if they were reading Hebrew and they were translating it, they would never say the name. But that name, the root of that name is the verb to be, yod heh vav -he. okay? So before Abraham was I am. What was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, I am. I am that I am, God said to Moses. That's Jehovah. So what was Jesus saying at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles to the Jewish leaders? Not just that he was old. He was speaking, he was telling them that he was God in the flesh. And then, 
one of the next I am's in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, um, and, and so on. But then we get to chapter 10. And I always wonder, every time I read these I am statements, what the background is. So I am the bread of life. In John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. There are just so many of these, and there's always a background to it. In John 6, it was the bread of life statement comes against the miracle of, 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 of the bread and the loaves and, the, and, and so on. And, and there's a lot more to it. John 11, the resurrection and the life, well, you have the resurrection of Lazarus. So whenever you have one of these I am statements in the Gospel of John, there's always some kind of Jewish background. There's something that makes it profound. Imagine it like this. Whatever it is that's going on, whether it be the resurrection of Lazarus or a Jewish festival, that's the setting of the stage. So what's the setting of the stage? for this statement in John chapter 22, which is the great I am said at Hanukkah. <laughs> so look at it with me. So let's start with the end of it. So the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Now. Whenever you see the word Jews in the Gospel of John, where the Jewish people are doing something that seems to be negative, just think in terms of those Jews who were opposed to Jesus or those Jews who disagreed with Jesus, because it can't be all Jews because Jesus was Jewish, right? All throughout the centuries, these statements have been used as anti-Semitic tropes, unfortunately, by a lot of medieval Christianity. So much so that in Jewish understanding and New Testament studies, Jewish people traditionally view the Gospel of John as an anti-Semitic document. So I want you to understand that. So whenever the word, the Jews are doing something that's not good, just remember it's those Jews that are against Jesus. It's not all Jews, okay? So the Jews, against Jesus, picked up stones again to stone him. Now, some people say they picked up the stones in the temple, which was a very, I mean, very, they kept it pretty clean and neat. Now, if, if you go down and visit this, the uh, southern steps of the temple now, or you go to the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, if you've been there, there's a lot of rocks around. You know, it's, it's not the cleanest. But this was a temple. You know, it's not a lot of dirt on the floor here, too. I see. And so, you know, they keep the worship places pretty good. So some people said that they picked up the stones that were left there after the Maccabees disassembled the altar and left them for the Messiah to decide what to do with. Who knows? It's one of the questions I do want to ask them. So the Jews against Jesus picked up stones to stone him, and Jesus replied to them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jewish people against Jesus answered, we're not stoning you for a good work, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. So there's no doubt that the Jewish leaders 
understood exactly what Jesus meant when he said what we're about to read. So 22, at the time of the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah took place in December, it was winter. It's the Hebrew month Kislev, which is usually December, and even in Israel it's cold, and it's winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple area in the portico of Solomon, and the Jewish people against Jesus surrounded him and began saying, how long will you keep us in suspense if you're the Christ, which is a Greek word for Messiah. Moshiach is Hebrew, Christos is Greek, Christ and Messiah mean the same thing. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Yeshua answered, that's his Hebrew name. I told you, and do not believe, and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These testify of me. Look at what I do. Isaiah 35, when the disciples went to Jesus in, in jail and said, you know, are you the Messiah? John wants to know. He says, tell him that the blind see and the lame walk. He quoted Isaiah chapter 35, which were the messianic, um, uh, basically the messianic job description, I call it. So again, verse 26, but you do not believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice and they follow me and I, I give them uh, eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I mean, who would ever have the gall to say that if he wasn't who he was? My father, listen to that, who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand and now comes the statement. This is one of the I am's, even though he doesn't say I am. I and the Father are one. He just said it in John chapter 8, didn't he? Now he says it again, a little bit differently, in John chapter 10. I'm not just the Messiah. I am the Messiah that God said would come, not that you think should come. I am God in the flesh. Now, why did the Jewish people react the way they did? Well, it's because of Hanukkah. Jewish people are on an idolatry hair trigger. We grow up with stories as Jewish people of Jewish people dying rather than committing idolatry. And so... The Jewish people here, these Jewish leaders, were so opposed to idolatry that when the one who was really God in the flesh appeared to them, they were so against idolatry that they rejected his statements as well. If there's one thing that Hanukkah teaches Jewish people throughout the ages, it's that Jews should never worship idols. It's better to die. We've got lots of stories about them, including one first century story where Antiochus was trying to get a woman with Hannah with seven kids to kiss his ring and accept him as a god. And all seven of her children uh, said no, except the last one who was a babe in arms. And they all said no to Antiochus, who tried to bribe them, and they all ended up dying as martyrs. Then Hannah was the last one with her babe in arms, 
and Antiochus in this story said, recognize that I am the true God and the manifestation of God. And Hannah jumped off the roof with her child. That's the way Jewish people think. These stories have been around for a long time. The significant issue here is that out of loyalty to God, in their own understanding, they rejected idolatry, but unfortunately re actually rejected the right manifestation of God. God in the flesh. And so we have a real dilemma with my dearly beloved Jewish people, my mothers, fathers, sisters, your friends. They are trained to reject the deity of Jesus through centuries of loyalty to God through rejecting idolatry. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, you respond with Christmas. You show your Jewish friends that idolatry, they're right. Idolatry is wrong. God's incorporeal. They're right. But there is a promise in the Hebrew scriptures from the Jewish prophets, like Isaiah, and Micah and others, that one day God would manifest in the flesh. And according to Isaiah 53, he would bear our sins. He would go through what we go through. And then he would do something that many Jewish people just don't even understand. And that is he would suffer and die as an atonement for our sins. Sometimes the first response a Jewish person has to the gospel is the result of centuries of Jewish thinking about God, idolatry, and so on. Jewish people are really affirmed during Hanukkah because you have so many Christmas decorations that those secretly Jewish people like looking at them. We understand that that reflects a people who believe that God became a man. Jewish people understand that. And we're trained to reject that. So why did Jesus make the statement on Hanukkah? He was trying to counter it. He was trying to make it clear. Look, you're right in rejecting idolatry. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because idolatry is always a temptation. But that doesn't mean that God would not keep his promise. That a virgin would conceive and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel. And in chapter nine, verses six and seven, that his names will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. It doesn't mitigate against Micah's promise that you, you little town of Bethlehem, though you be little among the clans of Judah, from one 
from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from long ago, even from the days of eternity. The Old Testament scriptures make a clear case through these prophetic promises that God will become a man and actually the most Jewish thing you could do is to believe what God said and to embrace the one who fulfilled those promises. So pray for your Jewish friends during this season of the year that they would be able to cut through the clutter and be able to see God's promises are true. That God would become a man. That's a Jewish hope for everybody. God would become a man. And that he would do that in order to redeem sinners because of his love. Let's pray. Abba, we love you so much and we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for this message against idolatry. And Lord, we affirm that. We, we ask you to take away any of the idols that might be lurking in our souls. No matter what it is, a person, materialism, politics, some philosophy that somehow gets mixed up with our, the purity of our faith in you. Lord, deliver us from idolatry. But we pray, Lord, as well, that we might dedicate ourselves afresh to you and to our Messiah, Yeshua, who indeed is God in the flesh. We pray, Lord, that you would build our loyalty to him each and every day. We pray for our Jewish friends. Well, we pray because we're a bit confused on this issue. And Lord, we love our Jewish friends and neighbors. And we pray, Lord, that during this season, that their hearts would be warmed and they would understand that these are promises for them, not just promises for non-Jews. We ask you to bless us and use us. In Jesus' name, amen.